Welcome to The Free Ranger, a podcast about telling the stories that matter. On this podcast, we'll be learning about storytelling from the people who turn important issues into stories. The writers, filmmakers, marketers, academics, and other professionals who weave together the facts to create compelling narratives that make a difference. This season, we'll be speaking with experts on Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist who developed the concept of archetypes. Now more than ever, it's important for us to know the man behind the concept, both his accomplishments and his shortcomings. We're thrilled to welcome Jungian analyst and writer Dr. Betsy Cohen. Dr. Cohen is the author of Jung's Personal Confession, an article exploring Jung's extramarital affairs and the often unacknowledged impact these relationships had on his work. Together, we talked about Jung's personal life, the relationship between patient and therapist, and the importance of vulnerability for human growth. All right, we are on with Dr. Betsy Cohen. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for joining us here on the Free Ranger podcast. My pleasure. So first question, what is a Jungian analyst and why did you decide to become one? Well, everybody would define that differently. They've all studied Jung in a Jungian institute or a Jungian group. And I chose to become a Jungian analyst because I had read Freud and I had been for 25 years what we call psychoanalytic, which is Freudian, which has changed a lot. But when I was doing it and learning it, it was very rigid and you weren't allowed to be actually... You could, I couldn't really feel like a person in the room. I was supposed to be more blank and neutral. And I don't think I helped people as much. So then I went to the Young Institute and my cohort of candidates would say, now, why are you here? You're Freudian. I said, look, I just wanted to learn Jung. I was on the Freud train and I got off at the Jung stop. I wouldn't say I'm a diehard Jungian. And I don't usually, I don't use the his concepts very much at all. And I've written papers questioning the concept. So I just thought he was a good analyst at the time because he brought divinity into the psyche and the spiritual. And I thought, well, if some people want that, that's great. I'm pretty dedicated to my Jewish roots. And that's what brought me into understanding Jung and anti-Semitism because it was horrific. And I didn't learn it while I was in training. And he's apologized once to a rabbi, and he was kind to Jewish people. But he did believe in quotas of Jews at the Jung Institute in Zurich. And he did quote some of Hitler's idiocies at the beginning, and then he realized he was making a mistake. But he did value Hitler as a person to bring back the German country and psyche and, you know, charm or whatever. So he's made a lot of mistakes in his life. What areas does your research tend to focus on? You've touched on it a little bit, but I'm curious to hear how you'd summarize it yourself. My research is pretty much focused on the relationship between the patient and the analyst. And I did like Jung's idea in The Psychology of the Transference, which he wrote in 1946, about the intimacy of patient and therapist. I wrote a 300-page PhD thesis about welcoming eros into analysis. Jung said he did, but 
he didn't in any of his writings, really. But his drawings in the Rosarium from 1550, these are old alchemical drawings. And so I did a lot of research about that also. But it's still like about the relationship. I've done a paper called The Skinless Analyst, Mutuality in the Psychotherapy Relationship, which had to do with my skinlessness after my husband died. Now, can a patient get better if the analyst is never skinless? If that patient had a very intrusive mother, then may, they might not want to see into the analyst. But other than that, I'm, I think the analyst or therapist has to learn to be comfortable with their own emotions. It's sort of a mutual emotional surrender. My friend Karen Marota, she writes about that. Surrender. We have to surrender with our patients to what's happening. And right now I'm writing a novel exploring that eros in the relationship. You wrote uh, another article in 2020 called Jung's Personal Confession. Did you read the paper? Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, okay. So what did you think of it? Oh, I thought it was great. Uh, I mean, I didn't know about uh, that part of Jung's life and particularly what happened between him and Tony Wolf was a, you know, of course, a long, sad story. I'm wondering, you mentioned the importance of opening up, I suppose, skinlessness between therapist and analysis and patient, client, however you want to refer if to they them. Want to know, if they want to know who you are, mm-hmm. I don't think the therapist should just start exposing herself or self-disclosing unless she knows that's what the patient wants because it's not about her but I or him the therapist it's about the patient and where the healing takes place is the space in between the two that's called an analytic third and Jung knew that because in those drawings that I talked about the Rosarian drawings are very intimate the man and woman come together they have intercourse they create something new. That means the patient changes and the analyst changes. That's what's new. That's positive. I went to a Freudian consultant once for years, and I said, what is it you learn in Freudian analysis? He said, bad news. <laughs> but I, It's changing. A lot of that article focuses on the extent to which Jung practiced what he preached in that regard. He would talk about mutuality. He would talk about that third space, that uh, space in between. But I got the sense from reading it that you didn't feel that he often reached that himself in his own work. Well, I wrote another paper about Jung's cases, and I analyzed 237 cases that he wrote up little vignettes throughout his 16 volumes. He didn't expose his feelings. He did with Sabina Spielrein. He wrote, you know, her letters that are all now available for the public and which he was very vulnerable to his love for her. And she was in the movie, A Dangerous Method. Yeah, they made her into a real hysteric. And she actually, whatever she was to begin with, she got better. Because of him and her, it's always both people. And she became a well-known writer in the psychoanalytic field, but she moved out of Zurich in 1910 
And they have had like a deep, deep emotional affair, which is documented in these letters. And that was the year when she left Zurich that he connected to Tony Wolf, who was the second one. If someone wants to find a lot of emotionality in Jung about a patient, I'd be curious. How did he tend to approach things instead? Apodictically, he would say, this is what's happening. This is what your dream means. This is the complex you're in. I mean, he did have a dream about a patient on a hill, and he realized he had been talking down to her. But that was highly unusual. It's different, though. You know, he practiced for 61 years, and he died, I think, early 60s. So it's changed a lot since him. But because of him, we have rules now about boundaries, because Freud was horrified at what Jung was doing. It hasn't worked when analysts have tried to sleep with their patients. It's harmful, very harmful. Now, people will always say, well, so-and-so did it and they're happily married. But, you know, I'm not in favor of it. And thank you to Jung for helping us come up with these rules and ethics. You also write in Jung's personal confession, this might be related, that Jung had a tendency to privilege the collective over the individual, the objective over the personal. Uh, I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. He actually separated them. He called the collective the impersonal. And I don't believe you can separate them. And many other people have written about that because we experience anything from the collective or archetypal through the personal. It's our own personal. If there's a good mother archetype. I have my own image of what that is, and someone else has a different image. So I think that was a mistake to separate them. I think it's impossible. Um, I wanted to say about his personal confession. He said in 1935, I consider my contribution to psychology to be my subjective confession. It's my personal psychology. He says, every psychology, my own included, has the character of a subjective confession. Frieda Fordham, who was married to a famous Jungian writer early, she said Jung was the patient and Tony Wolf was the analyst. So he definitely changed the boundaries. And Mark Sabin, a lovely Jungian analyst alive now, said, what is clear from the letters between Carl Jung and Sabina Spielrein is Jung became the patient and Sabina the analyst. So it was definitely more of a two-way street than Jung being the master analyst who was fixing these people up and helping them out. And when I wrote the paper on his 237 cases, we don't know what he really did. And maybe he made these vignettes very short because he was more interested in his theory. But he really got sick of seeing patients. He, he told Francis Wicks, who was alive then, an analyst, that patients eat me. And he complained to Jane Wheelwright, who was married to one of our founders, Joseph Wheelwright. She, she went to him for analysis. He said, I've been listening to mothers way too long. And so toward the end, he really didn't see as many patients. And he was always, he was gone about six months a year. So it was hard to develop the kind of intimate relationships that we have today. 
just purely from a logistical standpoint, he wouldn't be in the office for much of the year. No, and it was very important to him to be scientific because people made fun of him for being a mystic and out there and weird because of his desire to learn more about the collective unconscious, et cetera. And he liked yoga and he was drawn, very drawn to Eastern philosophy. Speaking of mysticism, you mentioned the Rosarium drawings a handful of times before. Uh, what are the Rosarium drawings that you're referring to? They're in his volume 16, Psychology of the Transference. It's from an early alchemical text from 1550. These drawings, 10 of them, there were actually 20, but he took 10 and said, this is an analogy of psychotherapy and what happened. What does his choice of these alchemical drawings say about his approach to the therapeutic process, do you think? Well, I think that's a wonderful question because that's kind of the point. If he felt that psychology healing took place by this king and queen who were the main characters, the only two characters in the drawings, going into an alchemical bath and making love and changing because of that. He never wrote about that with his patients, about his patients. But though I do think he had what he called a conjunctio, which was this blending of the two, a coming together with those three women, Sabina, and then another one, Maria Molzer, and then for over 30 years, Tony Wolf. If anybody listening to this podcast is interested, I'm happy to send them my paper. And these papers are also on academia.edu. Uh, so we've mentioned Sabina, we've mentioned Maria now, we've talked about Tony. We have not yet talked about uh, Emma Reichenbach? Reichenbach? Eventually Emma Jung, of course, the woman that he married. What was the relationship there between Carl and Emma? It was typical, right? She ran the household. She probably had a lot of help. She was the richest woman in Zurich when he married her. So that enabled him to have a much easier lifestyle. And he loved travel. And all of his largesse came from her at, you know, at the beginning. But she's the one that had the problem of having, unfortunately, to deal with Tony Wolf for all those years. Because Tony Wolf would go to their house twice a week, Sunday brunches. Young son writes about this and talks about this, how she was part of the family, but nobody really liked her because it was odd then to have a mistress and a wife at the same meal. While he was having his breakdown, she came every day and helped him get a grip, helped him with his thinking, helped him with his soul, and believed in him. So I think it was troublesome for Emma. And he had Emma and Tony go to therapy to work it out. He didn't go to that therapy. Poor Emma. I felt sorry for her. After Tony died, he did not come to Tony's bedside or he just dumped her after his heart attack is what happened. And she died alone and very unhappy. And after she died, he became closer to Emma. He wrote a paper in, I think it was 1917, about marriage as a psychological relationship. And he talked about what he called the container and the contained and his wife was his container. He needed her to be able to have the freedom that he wanted. 
And what he wanted was Tony. There was such a thing then, the monastic marriage, where they hold left hands. That's in one of the alchemical drawings, the king and queen. So he really felt she was his second wife. He described her as his spiritual wife. He took her everywhere. Emma had a lot to deal with. And she took care of Jung. She did try to divorce him a couple times based on Deirdre Bear's autobiography of Jung called Jung. I don't know where she got her sources, but I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised. But I thought it was interesting that he justified his relationship with Tony theoretically about what a marriage should be. When the question was put to him, he approached it as, as you said earlier, as a scientist, as a theorist, rather than as a person in a marriage with another human being. Where you're overcome when that happens. You're overcome. You're, the arrows takes over your mind in a way it can't. You know, when people are in this state of bliss with someone else. Well, I wouldn't say Jung had that, but I would say having to deal with Emma and Tony, who were very jealous of each other, was overwhelming for him. Although I don't think he writes about that, but it had to have been. You've mentioned a couple of times the importance of, you've said, skinlessness, uh, if that's what's desired by the patient, if that's what the patient needs. I was going to ask, why is it important that this mutuality occurs, that the therapist is changed by the patient just as they may change the patient in turn? Jung hoped that was the outcome of the therapy, that both the patient and the analyst changed. It's important because if some patients want to feel comfortable, they might want to know something about me. Am I married? Do I have kids? What do I think of this? What do I think of that? I think if you aren't truthful with your patient, that's one rude and hurtful. And the patient, it's harder to grow in that environment. I think the patient has to feel loved. Love isn't often something that you might hear maybe like a cognitive behavioral therapist mentioning when they're discussing the therapeutic process. Uh, how do you feel that that comes into therapy? What's the role of love between a therapist and someone that they're working with? Well, first of all, the cognitive behavioral therapist is doing techniques. So they're not believing in the unconscious particularly, and they're not trying to examine the patient's unconscious. They're telling them what to do in ways that are hopefully helpful. And I think that the healing of a therapeutic relationship is through love. And I think it's the relationship that heals. Jung said Eros is relationship. So he got it. He understood it. But I think it was too uncomfortable for him to write about it out. And also he would have hurt Emma if he wrote about his affair with Tony. What happened was, Tony's mother brought her to analysis in 1910 with Jung, and Jung fell for her because of her mind. She knew a lot about Greek mythology. She knew a lot about Eastern thinking and philosophy. And they terminated when she felt better. And then he had two dreams a year later in which she was, one was she was drowning and he saved her. And another was he was very, very upset to lose her. So he reached out to her and asked her to come over and they could talk about ideas. So she became his muse. 
But the upsetting thing for me was he never credited her. And how long did their collaboration last? About 30 years. And a lot of this was her ideas. So Jung's work, obviously influential in the field of psychology, but it's also had an impact beyond that. One of the things that we keep referring back to in our work at Free Range is a very simplified idea of archetypes, uh, the idea that these might exist in the human mind and that they are something that people respond to. How can those of us whose work or field is influenced by Jung make the most of his contributions without making some of the mistakes that he did in his own approach to the work? If you want to think in terms of archetypes, which I don't tend to think in terms of archetypes, I tend to not like labeling this is this and that is that, because I find those kind of statements very reductive. But let's say there is, there are archetypes that are just patterns in the psyche. They're just patterns and they're similar in all cultures or they can be. Like mother has a lot going for it or father or teacher. Those are all archetypes that we have and they influence us if we let them. But it could just be our own personal mother too that influenced us. So Jung felt it was a universal mother and a personal mother but I told you those can't be separated, really. So It seems like Jung, at his best, was able to keep that in mind, to see the universal working through the personal, but would often fall back on a place of distance uh, where he would rely more on the universal than the personal. Do you think that one of the challenges of working with Jungian material in and out of a psychoanalytic setting is to try to hold those two things in balance ourselves. And if so, how do we do that? How do we start to do that? We live in tension. I mean, let's just say we have a positive transference to our therapist and we develop a longing for that person. That has to be contained. So right there, you're in attention. Now, if you have a destructive archetype, that's going to create tension. You know, if you're not realizing this is more than personal. And it's personal, so if they're always both happening and they create a lot of tension. Let's say you believed in a good mother archetype and your wife wasn't that. <laughs> Well, that would create a conflict for you because you have this ideal in mind, which you project onto your wife, and she's failing to live up to that. So I think we have to learn when we're projecting archetypal imagery onto people. That reminds me of a point you made in the article. I'm not going to try to remember or pronounce the Greek term that Jung used, but he very explicitly referred to Tony in these very archetypal ways, as you said, the monastic wife, the muse, however we want to think about it. She was perhaps that for him, but she was also, there was an age gap between them as well, right? She was a young woman who had been his patient and became his mistress over the course of time. So there and was... She became his mistress, his confidant. She edited his material. She was right there. 
I think he had archetypal projections onto her as the muse. In Jung's personal confession, you also paraphrase Jungian analyst Mark Sabin, who writes about the need for Jungian psychology, as he says, to individuate and transform, as Jung recommended for the individual. He says the concepts will, in his words, become encrusted, fixed, frozen, if they are not continually challenged and explored and brought into tension. There's that word again with the unknown. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit, this uh, need for the field to continue to uh, evolve and change, and ask what would you like the future of Jungian analysis to look like if you could steer that ship in any particular direction? I think what Mark said is brilliant, and I agree with it. And Jung himself actually changed his thinking a lot. He was always changing what he thought it was. So to keep doing that into the future is important. And some places that people are changing are Jung's idea of animus and anima, because they were very gender biased. If let's say I have an animus masculine figure inside of me, it's way different. And my feminism is way different. Women can be masculine and that's fine. But he was very rigid in his stereotypes of man and woman. So that has changed, I would say, for most Jungian analysts, I hope. I think that this field of relational psychoanalysis, it's contemporary psychoanalysis. It's called relational. I'm hoping that Jungians will learn more about that and realize how to just deeply relate to the person as a real person and realize the transference and countertransference are important but they're alongside the real relationship, like what actually happens between us that where nobody's projecting feelings onto the other. It's just real in the moment. That's one thing I envision. Most of my papers have been about the crusted theories of Jung, whether it was the anti-Semitism or his idea of complexes, you know, or the one about the skinless analyst. I only use that word skinless analyst because once after my husband died, I was walking across the street and I felt I didn't have skin and that there was people could see right into me and just feel my grief. And all my patients knew that my husband had died because I told them because I had to leave. And it would be bizarre if they found out from someone else. Berkeley's a small community. <laughs> Anything that you wanted to cover, anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to touch on? When I said that love is what heals the psychotherapy relationship, love is a pretty broad concept. It's undefinable. So I think there's deep admiration in love. So that would be an example. If I deeply admired the patient, it's coming from a loving place inside of me. I'm not telling them I love you, but I feel a warmth, a nurturing, a wanting to be closer, which are parts of what love is. Dr. Betsy Cohen, thank you so much for joining us on the Free Ranger podcast here today. It was a delight having you. I'm glad we got the chance to talk. I'm happy to talk because I mostly listen. You mentioned there's a handful of papers that people should feel free to uh, reach out to you about. 
Uh, is there anything else, any other things that you wanted to plug or let people know about? I'm happy to come back on when my novel gets printed. Excellent. Hopefully we'll be in touch. If they're wondering how to find me, I'm at BetsCohen at gmail.com. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Miles. You're easy to be with. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with someone else who'd like it too. The Free Ranger is a production of Free Range Studios, a storytelling and innovation agency helping mission-driven organizations promote social good. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at freerange.com.